Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the Golf Australia magazine podcast series attempting to answer that intriguing question, just what is it? about this silly game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm your tour guide of sorts for these explorations into the minds of those for whom golf is more, so much more, than just a game. On episode 18, we're going to meet one of the European Tour's most popular players of the 80s and 90s when Zimbabwe's Tony Johnston t- joins us to talk golf, multiple sclerosis, bird watching, television and plenty more as well. Tony's known as one of the game's great storytellers and whilst today's interview hopes to bring out much more than just that side of him, it is irrepressible and I can tease you by letting on that during our chat, Tony refers to Greg Norman as both a pussy and a sclaffer. And I'm not sure there are many who could get away with that. Tony Johnston in just a moment. But first, some admin. As always, a special welcome if you're a first-time listener. Great to have you aboard. And assuming you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe in whatever podcast app you prefer. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts are the big three. And once you've pressed that button, you never have to worry about it again. Each episode automatically delivered to your preferred listening device, and you'll never miss one of our shows. As regular listeners will know, we've been at this for just over a year now. And in fact, this past week was the anniversary of our very first episode with the remarkable amateur Sue Worcester. That's an interview I still recommend, but there's plenty of others in the archive that will capture the imagination, including a terrific chat with Meg McLaren and a really fun discussion with Christina Kim and her boyfriend and LPGA caddy, Duncan French. Now, we always enjoy getting feedback about the show, so feel free to get in touch. You'll find me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori. That's M for Mary O-R-R-I. My DMs are open, so anyone can send a message. I can tell you that is a somewhat dangerous practice if you're considering going down that path. The show has its own Twitter handle at at ThingGolf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F, or you can seek out the magazine on Facebook, or if you're really old school, send us an email, golf at golfaustralia.com. Well, time now to turn our attention to today's guest, and Tony Johnston's voice will be instantly recognisable to anybody who has watched the European Tour in the last two decades. He's a terrific analyst of the game who also brings a magical sense of humour and a swag of great stories from his days on the tour in the 80s and 90s. But there's much more to the Tony Johnston story than just his gregarious personality. He describes himself as making Jekyll and Hyde look like amateurs and readily admits that his antics and temper tantrums on the golf course in his playing days were a constant source of embarrassment. In this interview, Tony also talks about the incredible story of how he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2003 and was the last man chosen for a drug trial which has seen him symptom-free for the best part of two decades. We touch on his bird watching, his second career in television, and yes, even find out in what context he referred to the shark as a sclaffer. I hope you enjoy as much as I did this chat with one of the genuine good guys of golf, Tony Johnston. Well, I suppose the first thing we've got to say, Tony Johnston, is thanks for taking some time in what is normally a very busy schedule, but in this new surreal world we live in, I don't think you've got much on in the diary, thanks to coronavirus. No, it's my pleasure. No, and I mean, it's a, it's a strange mix. It's the choice of doing nothing or absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> boredom is starting to kick in after a week of lockdown. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did I see you saying on Twitter that you were, you were involved in a race to the couch with your wife and that you'd won, which may not have been the best idea you've had this week, I can assure you. <laughs> no, it wasn't the best idea because she's now become Velcroed to the couch so that she doesn't have to try and race me to get there. 
indeed. <laughs> on a serious note, what are you doing? I know you've been very busy on Twitter, obviously. In all honesty, uh, and I didn't think I'd ever say this, thank God for social media. You're right. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the only problem with uh, social media and Twitter, you get the, the keyboard warriors who yeah. sit there, they've got nothing better to do than just, uh, you know, get online and start having a go at people for no reason. But for some reason, there's been absolutely none of that this week. I think people are just sort of sitting at home and getting in a chilled state, as they should. But uh, we're, it remains to see how long we can all stay chilled because I think we're all going to go stir-crazy eventually. Yeah, indeed. It's uh, My rule is this, Tony. If someone doesn't have their name on their Twitter account, I just don't pay any attention to them. If they're trolling. just but if, you, if you're not going to put yeah, your name to it, you're not worth listening to. So. That's exactly right. I agree 100%. Not what we came together to talk about. The podcast is not called The Thing About Social Media. The podcast is called The Thing About (laughs) Golf, Tony. What's The Thing About Golf? For Tony Johnston, it's been a huge part of your life. Yeah, it really has. Uh, You know, everything I have is through golf. I met Karen, my wife, through golf. Uh, My career was uh, obviously golf. You know, my kids came because of Karen through golf. So, yeah, I mean, golf has been – uh, you know, it's been the, the cornerstone of my whole life, really, and uh, I'm very grateful for it, and I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, I, maybe I would uh, have a better temperament on the golf course, but if I was the same person, I probably wouldn't, so there you go. <laughs> we, we might talk about that a bit later, because there's probably something in that, and there's some interesting things about uh, players matching their personalities to their games. Where did it start for you, Tony? Who Who passed on the infection that is golf to Tony Johnston? Uh, it was quite strange. When I was 11, we went for a, a holiday up in the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe um, at a little hotel called Leopard Rock, which was a tiny little – it was almost like a little castle out in the wilderness. Uh, and they had a nine-hole course, and the manager insisted that everybody in the hotel come and play in this golf competition. And my dad and I had never played golf. We'd never, you know, never had a golf club, nothing. So he signed us up. Off we went. And um, – I had really, I had the love of golf drummed into me because towards the end of the the nine hole competition, you know, we were just, I mean, just chopping and hacking around. And the shot my dad hit the best, it was a huge boulder about 15 feet high by 30 feet off in front of us. And he took a wild swing at this thing and flushed it, hit the rock, came straight back towards my head, put my arm in front of my face, and it nailed me right on the corner of the elbow. And I mean, yeesh, did I cry or what? It was the most painful experience. And you think right then I might have said, listen, this is not for me. Um, but we just fell in love with it. We went home. My dad went to an auction, bought um, a set of clubs for himself and a couple of sticks for me just to knock around the garden with. And and that was it. Fell in love with it. You know, cut a few holes with tins and I made my own golf course around the garden over my mom's dahlias and you know, if I went in the dahlias, I took a swing and destroyed her garden. She was a mad keen gardener. And then uh, it went on like that for a while. And then my dad joined us up to a little golf course in Bulaway, the hometown, and uh, utterly fell in love with it. Within a, a year of playing golf, I had really decided that's, you know, that was pretty much what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a golf professional. And uh, that was my goal thereafter. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, you went on to achieve that. Two things stand out to me about that story. One, where's Tiger Woods and the crowd when you need them to move the boulder? You don't get that in the backwaters of Zimbabwe, yes. do you? You only get that on the PGA Tour. <laughs> and the second thing is, do kids still do that, Tony? Bury jam tins in the back lawn and stick sticks in them and, and chip to them and pitch to them. A lot of things have changed about golf. That uh, might be one of them, mightn't it? A lot of things. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things have changed. I mean, in our current house, we've been here for 30-odd years now in Sunningdale. When we first moved in, I've always been a lawnaholic. 
And uh, I gave my son a choice. I said, listen, you can either have a football field or you can have a golf green. What do you want? And thankfully, he said a golf green. So, you know, I kept it for years and years. I had help from the local uh, greenkeeper, Lawson Bigham, good friend of mine. Um, and I had all the greens equipment, a proper greens mower, ransoms, uh, cylinder mower. And I used to have it running at about seven or eight on the stump. And uh, my son, Dale, that was his putting green. So I, I cut holes and I had flags in there. And, uh, you know, once he got his, his driver's license and he's a member of Sunnydale, I decided to put the blades up a bit because it was too much like hard work. But, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Do people still do that? The other thing I wonder if people still do it a lot. You know, when we were kids growing up in my hometown in Bulawayo, I mean, we had, uh, you know, there was no golf on TV. It was still black and white TV to actually. Uh, access because of international sanctions, access to magazines and things was very limited. So we used to just go out with our buddies, uh, you know, with really chopped up golf balls, which you couldn't get either. And we would just go and we'd get dropped off on the school holidays at 7.30 in the morning, get picked up at 5.30 in the evening. And we would just go round and round and round the golf course and practice all day long. But we'd practice as a, as a group. You know, we would go around greens and we'd find impossible shots and we'd have competitions, you know, get behind a bunker. You've got to cut it up over the bunker to the flag just the other side with a six iron and, you know, all that sort of thing. And it definitely taught us a heck of a lot about uh, the game and the short game and shaping shots. It was a, it was a wonderful learning ground. Mm -hmm. And also because we had no access to, um, you know, to international media, uh, we, you know, I don't think we really realized how tough the game is supposed to be and how, how, sort of impossible our dreams were because we all dreamed about being uh, excellent golf pros you know you wanted to be one of the best of the best in the world and nobody was saying look this is a dream you can't you know you're a four foot two hacker from Bulawa. how can you be dreaming about being a, a tour pro and you know competing with the best in the world but there was nobody to tell us that it wasn't possible our folks used to push us no not push us is the wrong word they used to encourage us pushing is the worst thing you can do with a, a young kid in any in any form of sport uh, but they gave us maximum um, encouragement we had great junior programs we had competitions in the school holidays great um, junior foundations you know we would just play competitive golf the whole school holidays and uh turned out that we produced quite a few good golfers, the likes of Nick Price, uh, Mark McNulty, Dennis Watson, Simon Hobday. It was phenomenal, really. We often think in Australia that in terms of professional golf, we punch above our weight. Zimbabwe might be punching three divisions above their weight with the names you've just reeled off there, in all fairness. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And at the maximum, there were probably only 10,000 golfers in the whole of Zimbabwe. Oh. I mean, it, it just wasn't a, you know, a leading sport. Uh, rugby and cricket, obviously, were, being a colony, were. were. Um, and for such a small community, it was amazing. We used to have an interprovincial golf tournament, um, you know, with uh, – sorry, an interclub competition in the, uh, from all the clubs around the country in Harare, or Salisbury as it was then. And we were in the secondary club in Bulawayo, and our highest handicapper was scratch out of a team of eight juniors. I mean, it was it was just unheard of. You know, we we just took it for granted. We thought, well, this is the norm, but it absolutely wasn't. And we used to compete. I mean, the competition was fierce amongst us. Mm. I wonder whether uh, we talked about how sort of golf has changed, and it's changed in line with society. Golf just hasn't changed outside of it. It's all a part of the same thing. I wonder how you would compare that as a learning experience in terms of learning the game, and I think in particularly of golf here, which is such a complex game with such a myriad of problems to solve with what we see these days, which is, well, in America, I know that there's a 
a fairly significant junior tour. It's almost a mini professional tour. Mm. There's golf academies where kids eat, sleep, breathe golf. That's all they do all day, every day, and they're on trackmans early on, and they've got specific exercises. Do we produce better golfers, Tony, or just different golfers in the modern era? Uh, different. I think I think there's less um, – how can I put this? I don't want to offend the current golfers because the current model golfers are – absolutely as talented as we ever were. But we were asked different questions with, um, you know, with our upbringing in the game, with the equipment, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we didn't have coaches. We went out and we just, we were self-taught and we just grounded out on the practice ground and learned a way to play. Uh, And by by that token, we definitely learned to have different skills around the greens. You know, we were talking last week with Mike Clayton and Billy Foster that said he never, ever used more than a 56-degree wedge. And, you know, these days all the kids have got 60-degree wedges, big-headed drivers, modern golf balls. And I I don't think it produces as much feel in the game. When my son Dale, when he was wanted his first set of clubs, proper clubs, I said, that's no problem. I can organize that. And I went up to the loft and got out a set of old Blade Mizuno. I gave him half a set. Oh, no. And he was mortified. You know, his kids all had these new Callaways and all, you know, tailor-maids. He said uh, – I said, what are these, Dad? I said, those are your new clubs. He said, but they're not new. And all my friends have got, you know, 14 clubs. I said, well, good luck to your friends. I said, you're going to learn with blade clubs and a half a set. And you're going to learn to hit all the shots and all the shapes. And I think, I mean, I think he appreciates that now because he plays off too. He loves the game. Um, but he's always keen to shape the ball and hit shots. He loves it. And I think that's been taken out of the game, the joy of shaping the golf ball which was it was a skill, and there was nothing more satisfying than seeing, a, you know, right, I'm going to have a nice little low fade rising, you know, started 10 yards left of the flag, faded into the right pin, and you pulled it off, and you, 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 felt like, you felt like a king. You know, the modern ball is so hard to move now that, you know, it's, it's, it is just a completely different game. It feels like the game's become more mathematical, and it's probably a resulting part of the amount of money that's available in professional golf these days, certainly for the men. Uh, on the LPGA, you can do quite well too, and the Ladies European Tour is starting to sort of get there. But there's a lot of money in professional golf, isn't there? And when that happens, the incentive becomes less about the satisfaction of the game and more about the most efficient way to play it. I remember that this this plays into stereotypes, but I think it makes the point nicely. Somebody once said, mm. "If golf had been invented by a German, it'd be a very simple game. You pick up the ball on the first tee, you run to the ground, and throw it in the hole, and whoever does that the quickest wins." Whereas the, the Scots gave you this array of ridiculous equipment that was completely all suited to the purpose. They put a bunch of stuff in the way and said, there you go, have at it. In a way, I would agree with you. But, you know, saying that there's so much money now that guys can afford to, you know, never win a golf tournament and they can make a million or two million a year. Mm-hmm. There was so little money in our day that, you know, if you wanted to feed your family and buy a house and pay your mortgage – you had to be competitive. If you were finishing 30th every week, you couldn't make a living. I mean, you just could not survive. So your prime goal was to go out there and win, you know, and finish in the top two or three at worst because that's when you made a decent check. And, I mean, I can genuinely say that even when I was absolutely skint and came out on tour with nothing, it never entered my mind when I got on the first tier of a golf tournament thinking, how much money can I make this week? It, it never entered my mind. You know, you knew that if you played well, the money would follow. But the prime concern on the first tee every week was, I want to win this bloody tournament. You know, I just want to beat everybody. And I think we see quite a lot of it these days on Sundays on all the tours. 
Guys go into protective mode. They almost look like they're uh, a lot of the guys, not all of them, but it looks like they're trying to protect the score and earn a nice check, which to me is absolute rubbish. You know, the whole the whole idea of being a golf pro is to get out the end to win tournaments, surely. What do you remember about that? those early days on tour? Uh, I spoke to Peter Senior on this show uh, a few months back and he recalled sort of his first win and it was all very emotional because they were literally out of money, he and his wife. Uh, it was his last tournament. He made triple up the very first hole. <laughs> in, the, in his last possible, it was like, oh, nice. hey, once we finish this week, we're going home to Australia because we've got nothing left. And then he went on to win the tournament. What's your recollection of yeah. how that worked? I don't think many pros find themselves in that situation. That's actually not fair. There's a lot, an awful lot of pros struggle to make a living, and it's a very difficult game still. Uh, but if you make it to the big show, you're not struggling for a quid, are you? Yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, these days, you know, there's 150 guys making a good living every year, uh, pretty much. But I mean, my, my first recollection was being, was being, uh, pretty poor, really. Yeah. I went to university down in Durban in South Africa, uh, played for Rhodesia, my home country and played for Natali province down there. And, um, they had a strange rule in those days for some unknown reason on the sunshine tour you had to give back half of your prize money for your first six months as a professional. God knows why. I think maybe it was to try and sort of uh, eliminate the dross. They didn't want every man and his dog coming out on tour. Um, and I had to forego my finals at uni because I turned pro in the May. Um, and in those days, if you finished in the top 30 in South Africa, you got a card to play in Europe because there was Monday qualifying in Europe. It wasn't an all-exempt tour. So, um, you know, I, I had to go and play the Sunshine Tour in November, December when my exams were going to be held, much to um, my folks' chagrin because, you know, I'd done my full uni course out there in Bachelor of Arts. And uh, don't laugh at this, Rob, Rob, but one of my majors was psychology. If you, if you tell that to Clay, they'll fall off the bench laughing. Yeah, you um, were your own PhD. So yes, I, I didn't <laughs> – Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, I went, I went uh, and played on the tour, got a card for Europe, uh, you know, always with the intention of going back and finishing my degree, but, but it would have had, had to have been another full year. But I turned pro, and, uh, and off I came over to Europe with, um, with, with nothing, really. I had one uh, sponsorship from a company called Hang Ten that made uh, trousers and they, um, headgear and stuff. And a wonderful old guy, Jim Allerton, for some reason, saw something in me and decided to give me a couple of bob to go and play over um, in Europe. And my folks gave me a bit of money, and off I, I came over here with my good friend, Dave Stratton. And and off you went. You know, it was you, your buddies, your caddies, and you went and played the tour. And when you look back at it now, you think, my God, what were we thinking? You know, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a recipe for disaster, really. But it's an adventure, um, isn't it, Tony? And I remember – That's an adventure. Oh, a huge adventure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I can remember clearly, distinctly, I was a member at Royal Durban Golf Club. And one of the old members, he was an old attorney, came over to me. Uh, it was announced in the paper that day that, you know, provincial golfer Tony Johnson was turning pro. And he came over and he said, listen, I don't want you to take this personally, <laughs> but I think you're going to I think you're going to starve. You know, I, I won't take that personally. Thanks very much for your, for your deep concern. <laughs> And I came over to Europe and I played nicely. And the second year, I lost in a playoff at Cran with uh, Antonio Garrido and Manuel Panera. And when I went back home, this guy said to me, well, what's it like on the bread and butter line? And I mean, you know, I wasn't in that league, but I couldn't resist it. I said, I wouldn't know. I'm on Xavier and Campe now, you'll get. 
and he just he sort of stumbled off and I felt so it felt so rewarding. <laughs> More so than the good uh, No sentence that starts with don't take this the wrong way ever ends well, does it? It's just not an opening that, that, that leads well. to a, a fruitful no, conversation. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like somebody that starts a sentence with trust me. Yeah, you know, the warning lights go on. Whatever you do, do not trust this bastard. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't trust him. That's exactly if he's right. going to tell you to trust him, you can't. <laughs> what did you know about tour golf by the time you'd made that decision, Tony? Because you said as you were growing up, no golf on television. Clay tells similar stories. And what age were you when you turned professional? It was, it was tradition for people to turn much later, uh, I think, 30 or 40 years ago. We see kids turning pro now at 16, 17, 18, 19, not uncommon. They're winning majors yeah. at 20 and 21 uh, sometimes. And what did you Absolutely. know of the tour? Uh, well, I only turned pro at 20, 22, actually, because I'd been to uni um, for a couple of years. Uh, but I'd played in um, a couple of tournaments down there. I played in the South African Open in 79, finished 10th there as an amateur, leading amateur. I played in a couple of tournaments in, in Rhodesia, as it was then, the, um, the Dunlop Masters. Now, you know, I had a fair idea, and I sort of, you know, I knew I had to get better. But, I, you know, I did believe in myself and i thought you know if if i can work really really hard at this and improve i can make a living doing this you know and uh you know whether you believed in it or not uh you know thankfully it did work it took me five years to my first win you were talking about peter fowler my first win was the south african open in 1984 and um you know as you as you said i mean that's so emotional if you're from that part of the world that's the tournament Mm -hmm. to win and that's when i really I really started b- believing or knowing. There's a difference between believing you can win mm-hmm. and knowing you can win. Once you've got one under the belt, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, the monkey's off the back and let, let's just go and play golf. But believing you can win is a little bit cocky. Having one, you now have confidence. They're two slightly different things, aren't they? Both important, but they're slightly different, aren't they? You notice players sometimes will yeah. change from cocky to a much more appealing confidence once they've had a victory. I'm thinking of Lucas Herbert in particular. You would probably know Lucas, commentating on the European Tour. Yes. And certainly he's one who's been very brash in his younger years and uh, not afraid of controversy Mm. and headlines and all those sorts of things. And after he won in Dubai, he came back to Australia and he was in the press conference at the Vic Open. There was a definite change in him, much less cocky and a much more comfortable confidence. They're different things, aren't they? They are different. You know, I think um, the cockiness, you've got a point to prove. You know, you might be the only one out there that believes that you can win. So, you know, you can't get pushed around. You've got to believe in yourself. And, yeah, when you get that win under your belt, you can believe. Look, there are some guys that when they get the first win, they become intolerable. You know, they become <laughs> yeah. absolute dicks, to be honest. Yeah. But thankfully, those are the minority. Uh, yeah, and I think once, you, once you've won one, you realize, hang on, you know, I'm there. I've, I have arrived, and now I've got to reset the goals and get on and, and, and go and play some good golf again. Mm-hmm. Indeed. What do you remember about that first win. Something must stand out about that tournament, I assume. Actually, let's go back a bit. What do you remember about your first event as a professional, the first time you teed it up? Can you remember the first tee shot you hit when you were no longer an amateur, or is there anything that stands out about that event? And then that first win and everything that comes along with that. Um, I can't really remember my first shot as a as a pro, to be honest. Um, yes, I can. It wasn't actually in tournaments. They used to have a series of pro-am tournaments. Um, around South Africa, and we went to a course called Whitbank. And the pro there was uh, a wonderful guy called Yanni Ackerman. Um, and you you went and played in this thing. The prize money was tiny, but the whole Sunshine Tour was there as a warm up for the for the Sunshine Tour proper. And 
I went out and I think I finished, I think I finished second and made a check, which actually enabled me really to get, you know, to live a proper life on the, on the early part of the Sunshine Tour. And then, and then I went on from there. And, and the South African Open, you know, I, I can, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it was in 1984, but I can, remember, I can remember most of the shots that I hit there, to be honest. You know, a couple that really stood out in particular. But, uh, you know, it, it just meant so much. It just meant so much. It was uh, beat Fulton Allen down the home stretch. Fantastic goal for 40 was. Uh, you know, and all the guys were there. All the, the top South Africans, Gary Player was there, John Bland, Hugh Bialke, Nick Price, all the guys were there. You know, and if you can beat those guys, you think, hang on, I definitely can do this. I'm, you know, I'm in the right line of work, maybe. Yeah, indeed. Well, of course, and some of the, well, you think of Nick Price, especially went on to win three majors. So yes, if you can beat him, you can <laughs> you can mix it anywhere in the world. What was life like on the European tour, Tony? We hear these stories about it being fantastic and gregarious and wonderful, and everything was. I'm sure it can't be all true, can it? There must have been parts about it that weren't fantastic, but in a funny way, that less money. Equals more fun, I think. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we used to have an unbelievable amount of fun on the tour. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, you went out on tour, uh, particularly once you'd, you'd had kids. You know, it was you, your caddy, and your buddies on tour. And that was it. That was your support structure. You didn't have managers and sports psychologists and, you know, all these guys hanging on and, and uh, sucking the blood out of you. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you just had fun. We would go down to reception in the, in the evening. You know, you'd, the first six or seven guys that were, were down would all come together. You'd have an Aussie, a Brit, a Southern African, an American, and you'd all wander off and just go and find a restaurant. And the camaraderie was, was fantastic. And, you know, if somebody missed a cut, you know, it wasn't – you weren't totally self-centered. Look, I've made a cut. I must make a nice check now. You know, you genuinely felt for the guys. And if they were struggling with their game, the guys would be around him on the tee trying to help him and give him advice and get him back on the rails again. But we had – I mean, the laughs we had then, you know, if we had to tell them all, we, we would go on for, for two weeks. We had a lot of laughs, and uh, there was a, a warmth in the tour, you know. Nowadays, a lot of the guys go out, they go out with their little clique of um, manager, coach, sports psychologist, physio, and, you know, I think there's a little less mixing, perhaps. It's, it's more business, isn't it? Although it was business back then too, I guess. Did any of that impact the way you play, do you think, Tony? The way the game was played by professionals? Uh, mm, yeah, I think... Uh, probably, you know, probably the same thing that the guys think today. You know, just practice as hard as you can. Um, but um, it was it made life easier. I think it made longevity easier because you were out you were out there with friends on tour. You know, all the guys have their friends on tour. But you know, we used to go out and you could pick anybody on tour and go out for dinner with them and have a great time. And I'm not sure that applies now. You were trying to beat the guy the next day. You know, you might have dinner with him one night on the Saturday night, both in contention, and the next day the gloves are off, and, you know, I want to cut your throat. I just, I basically, I just want to kill you. I don't want you to get that first place check. I want it. Uh, you know, and that was the understanding. And then, you know, 24 hours later, you're best buddies again. Um, so it was, it was an interesting experience. You know, I remember guys telling me a couple of years before that, uh, before I came on tour, guys like Simon Hobday, Jack Newton, um, Ian Stanley, there was a bunch of them. They used to pool their money. 
Can you believe this? They used to get paid in cash. They used to pool their money, stick it in a big jar, and they paid all their expenses out the jar, all of them, about five or six of them. Can you imagine that happening today? And, you know, the, it was it was more of a vocation. I think. Guys just wanted to play golf. They wanted to travel the world. They wanted to compete, and they just wanted to play golf. And they used to go out to dinner with their, their jar under their arm. You know, and you can pay for dinner with a, with a jar. If a guy missed a cut, well, he got a share of the, the, the money next week, and, and off they went. And an amazing, an amazing time out on tour. Yeah. With that crew that you've just outlaid in particular, that's just an extended version of the shout, isn't it? Because <laughs> all of them. I'll tell be... you what, that's the, that's an, it's, <laughs> it's an extended version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, actually. <laughs> can you imagine the chaos they caused? Oh, Vin well. Baker was another one, the late Vin Baker. I mean, they were. <laughs> <laughs> they were the wild bunch personified, but the fun they used to have, the fun we used to have, we, I mean, we just, we just loved it. We loved being out there. I've never obviously met him. I never got the chance to, to see him play, but people talk about Hob Day with great reverence as perhaps one of the great comedians, if not great golfers uh, of his time. Yeah, we should probably have a podcast just on Hob Day. <laughs> I mean, the Hob Day stories, you know, I played with uh, Lee Trevino, who was considered the funny man of golf, but, to be honest, after five or six holes, the repertoire started repeating. Uh, you know, and by, after 18 holes, you were a little bit bored with it. It's an act, isn't Hobday it? Was a, a, it's a rehearsed Yeah, act. it was It's a been successful. And you can it was a rehearsed thing. Yeah. Yeah, but not yeah no, Hobday was, he was as mad as a hatter, but um, a lovable mad hatter. And he had these one-liners that just came into his head, and they were absolute originals, and they came throughout his life. And... Um, you know, he, he was the sort of leader of the cohort of that. But as a striker, he would have been in the same league as Tom Watson and uh, Ben Hogan. No question. He was, unfortunately, a horrendous putter. And uh, when he won the U.S. Seniors Open, they asked him afterwards how he felt. He had about a three-footer on the last. And he said he was way too nervous to choke. <laughs> <laughs> because he was a pretty nervous man with a putter. Um, I remember in the, Rhode- the Rhodesian Open one year, he was leading, and I was second. Uh, I was still an amateur in those days, and I finished second to him. But on the putting green, uh, the, before we teed off, I said, uh, play well today, Hobbs. And he literally couldn't get away. And he just walked off. I mean, he was a gibbering idiot. And uh, But what a wonderful man. And the stories, the Hobday stories. Dale Hayes did a, a book called... Uh, Hole in One. He and Dennis Hutchinson and Hobday before he passed away. But the the stories were a little bit sanitized because a lot of the people that are, appear in those stories are still alive. <laughs> uh, but Hobday's life, uh, you know, just to sum up what Hobday was like, uh, I was told on a Thursday that Hobbes was really close to, to passing away. So I phoned him and I said, listen, Hobbes, geez, I'm sorry to hear, uh, you know, that you're not feeling well. He says, not feeling well? He says, I'm absolutely buggered. He says, I'm done. I'm out of here. And we kept on chatting. And eventually I said to him, well, Hobbes, you know how much we all loved you. He says, well, of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and a week, a week later, he passed away. And um, his good friend, Peter Makovich, was at his bedside. And Hobbes was renowned for um, not being able to say a speech. Um, and Makovich said to him, listen, Hobbes, Hobbes said to him, he said, Macca, what will happen if I miraculously go to heaven? What will I say when I walk in the front, in the pearly gates? Macca said, listen, Hobbes, I can't give you the advice, but for God's sakes, 
don't prepare it because you will cock it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Hobbes, and Hobbes just smiled and passed away. And he was that sort of man till the very, very end. He was an absolute legend. Uh, we should all be so lucky to go in such a way, Tony. There's, there's something oh, quite man, beautiful yeah. about that, isn't there, that to, 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 yeah. to die the way that you've lived. Is golf unique in the way it attracts this broad array of personality types? Some of them quite defective, frankly, it has to be said. I mean that in a nice way. Uh, look, you know, no, I would agree. You know, I would say, I'd say almost every single pro after a year on tour is slightly defective mentally. I think you've got to be defective, defective mentally to to volunteer for it in the first place. Uh, but after a year on tour, you've definitely the brain cells are already starting to die. And um, you know, I think the one thing about golfers, pro golfers, there's not a single pro golfer out there that's not OCD. Every single one of us is OCD, without question. And, you know, you can't stand on a practice tee and hit millions of balls for 30 years expecting the most incremental change if you're not OCD. It's just as simple as that. You know, and you're living under – look, people will say, you know, if, if you know they're running businesses, yes, they have a lot of pressure. It's a, just a different type Absolutely. of pressure. You know, you're all on your own. There's, there's, uh, there's no backup. If you don't perform, you don't eat. And neither do your family, as simple as that. You know, and you can relate that to any business, I suppose. But, you know, you're away from home in the height of your career. You're away from home for 25 or 30 weeks a year. And, uh, you know, I'm not crying for sympathy. That's what we chose. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of guys that go, oh, I had to give up so much. No, we chose to give it up. You know, when we're at home, we had terrific times. When you have a week off, you know, we had the advantage on the average working man because we were there you know, all day, every day for a week or two weeks. So we had, you know, we had great, uh, um, great times with our families. But we wanted to be out there. We wanted to be out there competing. And you can't do that on your back door. We had to travel. Um, and that's where the importance of, um, you know, the support structure of your friends came in. But, yeah, we wanted to do it. We wanted to play. We wanted to travel. And, you know, that was our life. We loved it. Indeed. It strikes me, Tony, that the way you've grown up in golf terms is very different to a lot of people. Did you have heroes? You mentioned that when you were young, you'd just go around the course with your mates and practice, you know, hitting this shot and that shot and this is impossible. Were you copying somebody? For most of us, we're copying, depending on your generation, Nicholas or mm. Woods or Norman or – were you copying people or – and what what effect do you think yes. that might have had? Uh, I mean, you know, coming from Southern Africa – all of us, our hero was Gary Player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I said earlier, we didn't have much access to magazines and things. And Gary used to do a, a cartoon strip um, every week in the papers that got put into book form of um, him giving tips. I mean, that was my Bible. I read that every single night, every single night, and basically developed my game, particularly in my short game, on what I'd read uh, from Gary. And, you know, with him being renowned as the best bunker player in the world people say well why are so many southern africans great bunker players and it's because of gary mm. when we were young you know we wanted to be able to do what gary did and you know we spent hours and hours and you know entire school holidays practicing in bunkers but and gary's determination his desire to win that definitely rubbed off on us you know some of that is inherent uh you know it comes from your upbringing and your family and what they instill in you but there's no question that gary was was a hero of every Southern African golfer from, from my era. Once you got to the tour, who were the 
who were the stars of the time and what are your recollections of sort of who you played with? What was the best golf you saw? We, we spoke, as you said, we did that long podcast about Seve with Billy Foster and Mike. And I'm sure that he'll appear somewhere in there, Seve. But who were the best players you played with and what separated them? What made them better and the best? And what were the strengths of your game? I think you won six times in Europe, 17 times in South Africa, a couple of those maybe co-sanctioned. So pretty impressive career yeah. in terms of victories. What were the bits of your game? But who were the best and, and then what were your strengths? Um, the best, Norman, uh, Seve, and Nick Price, mm-hmm. probably. And I played later on um, uh, when I started sort of producing the goods with the likes of Tom Watson, etc. But early on, yeah, Norman, Seve, Nick Price. Um, and I was very lucky to have um, John Bland. He was my best buddy out on tour. Short hitter, but the straightest hitter maybe that ever lived. And he was a great mentor, showed me the ropes on tour. But uh, entire game-wise, yeah, Norman and Seve. Norman, I've told you the story before, Rod, on a different podcast, but I'll repeat it. Um, the Italian Open in 1980 at Aquacenta. I've just, just come out on tour. First year on tour, and I've made the cut, and I'm so excited. And John Bland and I are going out for dinner, and we look at the um, draw sheet in the hotel. And I said to him, Who, this, who's this G. Norman from Australia? And he looked at me like an alien. He said, sorry? I said, G, who's G. Norman? He says, you know, you are a bigger dick than I actually imagine. You, you don't know who Greg Norman is. And he's been out here for, you don't? I said, Blandy, I'm sorry, I just don't know who he is. He said, you'll find out tomorrow, my friend. I said, oh, well, we'll see what happens here. So I go up to the course, get on the first tier. And the first tier at Aquacenta was about 200, maybe 270 yards to the front edge of the green with a ditch right up against the front edge of the green, a little canal. And the green was only about 15 or 18 yards deep. And every single player just nudged it down there with a two or a three iron uh, and then wedged it onto the green. So I get up first, wedge it onto the uh, two iron down the fairway, wedge it on the green. That's my plan. Norman tees it up next and... Out comes the three wood. And I thought, geez, what a pussy this guy is. And he's going to hit a wood. Can't even get a wood up to my two iron. And he had these beautiful purple-headed Tommy Armour woods, you know, the old persimmons. And he gets up, and I thought, oh, God, yeah, I will know who this guy is by the time I'm finished. What a sclaffer. And he gets up, Roddy hits this thing, and it comes out like a gunshot. And I've never heard the like of it. It just took a pull. And I thought, oh, my God. God, what's this guy doing? And he flushed this thing, carried the ditch, landed on the green, stopped it on the green. I said, well, that's quite impressive. <laughs> he, hence, he then followed it up, rolled it in for an eagle two. We get on the next tier, par three. His honor. Hits the shot. Mm, beautiful. High in the sky. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Straight in the bottom of the hole. Hole in one. And I mean, I am jumping around the tee like a raving lunatic. I've never seen anything like this. And I've gone up and stuck my hand up to shake his. And he looks at, he actually looks at my hand as though it's covered in the COVID 19 virus. And I said, Is there something wrong with you? I said, No, well, well, well done. He said, Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. And, you know, we were off right at the beginning of the, uh, the day's play because he'd had a, an indifferent first two days. And he'd cruised around there. He didn't look particularly interested and just whipped it around there in something like 67 or 66. And uh, I sort of ground my heart out for a 71 or 72. And I came in, went into the players' lounge, and John Blanche there with ear to ear smile. He says, So, uh, you, uh, so do you know who Greg Norman is now? <laughs> Cheeky bugger. And uh, that was my, uh, that was, 
that was my introduction to Greg Norman. Man, he was. I mean, the guy led the world rankings for five years. The fact that he only won, really, you'd have to say, uh, was a major disappointment. Oh, Travis. Uh, but, All his own making, of course. He, but. And he, yeah, I mean, he had a couple of uh, majors stolen from him, but he did, he did cock a, a few up as well along the way. But, uh, you know, and he did everything fabulously. You know, he looked like a clothes horse. He was statuesque, unbelievable, maybe the best driver that ever lived, a wonderful iron player, chipper, putter. Everything he did was just brilliant. And I came off the course a bit like when I went out to watch Seve my first year on tour. And I just thought, yeah, how am I going to compete with this guy? You know, if I'm ever going to compete with these clowns, I need to be an awful lot better. And it was a, it was a, great, it was a great thing, a great learning experience because you know – you just better get better if you want to make a living doing this because there are some guys out there that are freaks. And it was a good thing that I played with them. Yeah, indeed. Sclaffer. I wonder if he's ever been called a sclaffer before or since. <laughs> <laughs> still, he still hits it amazing these days. You occasionally see well, him. Occasionally, if you follow him on Instagram, you see plenty of him, but he still hits it uh, like a dart in this day and age. What was the... What was the media and the hype surrounding golf at the time? What's your memory of that, Tony? Because, of course, in this day and age, everything's changed. The media might have changed more than golf through social media, yeah. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those things. There's much less focus on newspapers. Television's role has changed. They've gone much more from covering the game to being a partner in the game as a part of the business. So there's a lot of things have changed. What was your recollection of the, the sort of the, the 80s and the 90s, I suppose? Down here in Australia, there was one player and one player only. Norman was our Gary player. Uh, in, in your yeah. sort of scenario, and t- people would turn up six deep. They'd line the fairways from the tee to the green for all 18 holes to watch him play at Huntingdale or the Australian Open. What was it like internationally then in Europe? You used to play yeah. a lot more golf in Europe itself as well at that time. Yes. You know, the, everything was smaller. There wasn't really a dedicated media centre. You know, if there was, it was a tiny little room. You'd have two or three reporters from uh, maybe from England, one or two local guys, somebody from the local TV station who knew nothing about golf. Um, and as you as you alluded to, you know, there was more coverage in the paper, which was a great thing because we had wonderful writers like John Huggan et al. who wrote about the game. And you know, I, I one of my majors at uni was English, and I've I've always I've always rejoiced in the written word when it's written properly. Sadly, we don't get that much anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, TV is a big thing. I, I do sometimes wonder if, you know, there's too much golf. You know, it's, it's the market's flooded, really, and I think people can turn on any time they like and watch, whereas in those days you had to turn it on to watch a specific event. Um, and, you know, it, it was great. You didn't have – 40 photographers out there. You had one or two dedicated photographers. They all became friends. The media guys became friends. You know, and I think we understood the media better because uh, they were there doing a job, getting underpaid, uh, struggling along. Uh, you know, if you were smart enough, you realized that these guys need to make a living and that what they say uh, made your name for you, you know, and promoted interest in sponsors for you. So, you know, you treated them properly. You never went in there and... Uh, bad-mouthed any, uh, any reporters. They were doing their best, you were doing your best, and uh, we were all one big happy family. Well, now, of course, you have managers, so players very rarely speak directly to reporters, and if they do, it's all been organised in advance with time limits on it, and in fact, sometimes people will even sit in on the interviews and start pointing to their wrists and telling you to wind it up after you're allotted eight minutes. Yeah, that doesn't do much for the game, does it, Tony? The, the no, stories I grew no, up reading it's, it's, and the coverage I grew up reading was wonderful about the game. It made it this wonderful mystical thing. It's a very much more business-like 
relationship between the media and the players these days, it feels. Well, it is. I mean, you know, on the, on the European tour, you know, if uh, media want to speak to a player, first they've got to go through the tour, through the um, player liaison officer, who then goes to speak to the manager, who then asks the player, and then it's got to come all the way back down the line, and it's, it's absolute bollocks, if I can use that expression. You know, you're earning your living because of the public. You know, if, if there's no public interest in golf, we're, we're all out of a job, every single one of us. And, you know, if, if you required, if you have a good round where there's an incident of some kind and you're required in the media center, the scorer should say, you are going to the media center now and the liaison officer should just take you over there. All this rubbish about having to, you know, get work your way through managers, etc. Damn it, you've got all day. You know, you can go to the media center for 10 minutes and give 10 minutes of your time. It's helping you. It's helping the two. It's helping everybody. And I'm, I'm just not for it. I'm just not for this, uh, this whole chain where you've got to get to a player to, to liaise with them. You know, to get a, an interview. I just think it's absolute rubbish. It, it sends a message to the players that they're more important than they are too, doesn't it? Well, it does, and you know, a lot of that is the fault of of management companies. Mm, let's be honest. Middle you know, they they pamper these they uh, they pamper these guys, and you know, they instill in them this idea that they are the most important on God's planet. And you know, the bottom line is, we can hit a ball around a field into a hole mm-hmm. in fewer strokes than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Get unbelievably paid for it. Uh, and you know, we've I was in the same league. I had a you know, I had a good career. I made a good living out of it uh, in the later years, but. Um, you know, that's what we do. We're not brain surgeons. We're entertainers. And, you know, do the job. You know, treat amateurs well in the pro-am. Uh, you know, everybody gets a little bit tired of the same questions in pro-ams. You know, what's your real job? Oh, God. Uh, what's your handicap? Oh, God. And what do you do when you're not playing golf? Oh, God, I eat, I sleep, and I go to the toilet. Oh, please, God, take pain away. But, you know, that's 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 – that's unusual. You know, most people that play in programs these days, they've got an idea and you never know who you're playing with. It might be the head sponsor or his best buddy. And, you know, you annoy enough people, we'd be out of sponsorships. So um, do the job. and The management companies need to see that. You know, you can't uh, put these guys up on a pedestal and everybody's got to dance around and pussyfoot around you. It's, it's complete nonsense. There might be one or two who are in that rarefied area. I think of Rory. I think of Tiger. Who've kind of earned that tiger, especially uh, the right to say no all the time. But for most of the rest, um, they really are kidding themselves. Aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's the truth. They'll they'll not they'll realise it all too late when people stop being interested, when people just stop bothering to ring. No, you're them. absolutely right, hundred percent right. And you, you know the top guys, you know you see the the life they lead. You know their life has to be a lot more structured, or they don't actually have a second to themselves because they finish around. They've got to go and do. TV interview, media interview, radio interview, blah, 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 and still find a life and time to practice. Yeah. Plus, they normally, you know, they're, they're there on an appearance fee, so they have a lot of um, stuff to do for sponsors, a lot of responsibilities. And if their life isn't structured, it just becomes a mess. But, yeah, for the average, the average really, you know, good tour pro, uh, it's, it's not as bad as that. So just, you know, just do the job. Uh, you mentioned that, of course, maybe we've got too much golf. This is a theme that number of podcasts that I've been a part of we keep coming back to what do you think this coronavirus thing that we're what three weeks into at the moment it already feels like golf happened for the last time eons ago and there's nothing in the foreseeable future I mean 
the bleak outlook would, would say yeah. no more golf probably for the rest of 2020. I think at best you're looking at the back quarter of the year, September, maybe, mm. maybe August, if things were really to go yeah. well. It's an interesting time, isn't it, to to reset <laughs> for the sport? Cool. It really is. I mean, you know, I've, I have a lot of fun on, on Twitter and I love watching, you know, people uh, setting up practice um, nets and things in their backyards and things. It's, it's hilarious. But, I mean, people are desperate to get out on, on a golf course again. And I think there'll be a, a surge in the game. You know, we always talk about, um, you know, uh, reducing numbers in the game. Well, you know, maybe that's because there is, you know, we are inundated with maybe too much golf. You know, you've got all the different tours around the world that are televised. But I think once it kicks off again, I think uh, I think there'll be a, a mad rush for the game again, and a lot of um, a lot of popularity again. Professional golf, you would expect that. Yeah, I think. professional golf projects an image of the game that's not necessarily healthy, doesn't it? This is one of the problems or the conundrums for golf is that people who've never played, if their only exposure is to have seen professional golf on television. It's not necessarily the sort of thing that would make you say, I'd like to go out and give that a go, is it? Um, no, maybe not. And, and, you know, I suppose until they give it a try, when you watch, we know, when you watch the top guys in any sport, it looks easy. So, you know, here's a bunch of guys swatting a ball around a field into a hole. And then off they go and do it all again 18 times and then 72 times. But uh, there is something about the challenge of the game, isn't there? Once you, once you, you start trying the game, you get addicted. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the addiction is the fact that you can never beat right. the game. You can never achieve perfection. There's always a challenge there. And uh, I think that's uh, that's one of the glorious things about the game. We all know somebody who's incredibly competent in their own field who tries golf for the first time and is just humiliated by it. I think we've all experienced that, haven't we? It's a, it's a, <laughs> cruelly, it's a joy to watch sometimes. Somebody brought down a peg or two by the game. But yes. how do we get people to engage the game in that way, Tony? I agree with you. If you don't try golf, you can't possibly ever understand it. It doesn't matter how passionate an advocate you are for the game. You can never explain to somebody who doesn't play. And the truth is not everybody will go on to fall in love with the game. Some people, it just does leave them cold, and that's fair enough. But how do we get more people to try? It seems that's the missing link in the golf chain. Those who are in golf are fanatical about it, a lot of them, uh, and they're very devoted to it. Those who are outside of golf, there's there's quite a bit of resistance among some, if not indifference, which might even be worse. Yeah, I think we've got to go back to basically to um, the youth. You know, we've got to go back to the kids and get them involved. You know, the current generation, they're either playing golf or they're not. You can get some of them to, to restart, but we've got to encourage the youngsters to get out there. That's where the next generation comes from. And, you know, I said to you earlier, we had great junior programs when we were in Rhodesia, which was a tiny golfing country, and in South Africa, we used to go down there for test matches. But you've got to you've got to get the kids interested. If you get it at, at grassroots level, if you can get the kids interested, there's our next generation, and we won't be worrying about numbers. But I mean, the game has become so expensive; it's become so time consuming. We've got to find ways around all of those problems. Uh, but uh, you know, those that that. Uh, get addicted. They're addicted mm. for life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about that. Well, here's two of us sitting right here. Do we fo- last one about this one? Do we focus sometimes too much, or is th- not we focus? Is there too much focus on elite performance in the idea of trying to attract juniors? We don't ever seem to sell golf as this is the game you can have for life, and you can go away from it for periods for families and business reasons, and try other sports. But golf will always be there right up until the time you fall off the perch. 
wonder whether we sell that enough. Uh, gee, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, some of us have no aptitude I don't for the know game, how to answer Tony. that. And even at a young age, I could have told you that I was never, never going to be any yeah, good but, at the game. And so there must be some other reason but, to play beyond just performance, I think. I wonder about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose um, exercise your outdoors. And, you know, it always used to amaze me in pro-ams. You'd play with guys in the pro-ams that were absolutely atrocious. You know, the handicap officially was 24, but really they, they couldn't burst a grape. And the look on their faces, how much they were enjoying it. And I used to think, you know, being a fairly competitive person, I used to think, why? why would you come out? How could you come out and enjoy this if you know you're always going to be utterly crap at it, you know? Because anything that I was, I, I ever did, I, I sort of wanted to be the best mm-hmm. I could. But not everybody's built like that. And people go out there who are, are lousy, but, man, they love the game. And that really, really does impress me. And those people are the ones, you know, they, they're the majority mm-hmm. of the game. They're the guys that, uh, that keep golf afloat, pro golf. You know, we we you know we, we might be the elite, but basically we the the entertaining elite. And if every pro golfer in the world kicked the bucket tomorrow, it wouldn't make a difference to the game. The game would still continue. Mm, yeah. um, and you know that's what you got to stress. And and that's those are the people we need to get more involved in the game. You know, speed the game up, make it a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Somehow make it more interesting. Make it more. Um, just make it more enjoyable somehow. I don't know. We've got a little bit off the track. Two other things I want to talk to you about. Television. When did your television career start? Do you enjoy it? Uh, and what are the keys to it? You've, I, I like your commentary. Guarantee there'll be people out there who don't. That's the nature of the world. If you've got any sort of a public job, you'll sure. have fans and detractors. Sure. What do you, what, what's your take on television? You've been in it for a fair while now, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love doing it. You know, I started off doing a sort of a Wednesday program for Sky, sort of a, a magazine program. And then they said, look, you know, uh, you're doing all right. We'd like to have you in the studio during the US golf. And then it progressed to commentary. How long ago, Tony? What, what um, period was this? When are we talking? And uh, two, In fact, just before 2000, I was doing bits and pieces for Sky. And then, um, you know, once I, I sort of the early 2000s, I was doing a fair bit. I was still trying to play a bit on the seniors tour. Um, but then when I called it a day, um, and that was all the way up to 2014, I was doing sort of, uh, I was playing and doing uh, 13 weeks of Sky a year and, and just loved it. You know, I love being out there. I love mixing with the youngsters. I love being involved in the game. I don't love playing the game um, because the game, to be brutally honest, drove me absolutely frigging nuts my whole life. I mean, you know, I mean, I stopped playing because I'd said to my wife, Karen, 20 years prior, the day I feel I'm not competitive, I'm done. I mean, I'm done. I'm not George Foreman. I'm not going to have all these comebacks. I'm done. Because uh, I always had, uh, well, a slightly volatile temper, <laughs> to say, on the, the golf course. I was renowned for being a bit of a bit of a volcano. And I would come off the golf course every single day of my life, exhausted from fighting my temper, and embarrassed about my temperament. And the next day, I'd get on the first day and say, right, today will be different. You'll be normal today. You'll be fine. And within three holes, the head was off. And, you know, it just got to the point that the, the frustration outweighed the pleasure. I didn't feel I was competitive. Um, and that's when I, I decided, look, I'm, I'm going to call this a day. I love golf as a tool to compete. I loved it when I was young. But, you know, after 35 years out on tour, and you get to a point where you can see the shots, but you don't hit them. You know, I'm going to hit a nice, high, soft little fade to that back right flag, and you get up and you hit a pull hook. 
you know, and the head comes off and this club's go, oh, it was just horrendous. So uh, I called it a day, got into TV, and um, I've loved doing it ever since. We have a great two teams. I work for Sky and I work for the World Feed, as you know, the international feed. Um, I'm lucky to work for both, and we've got two great uh, commentary teams on, on both sides. And they've now amalgamated the two commentary teams each week into one uh, for the European tour. And, you know, we, we always have a great time. It's all all my buddies that I, I played with in the in the sort of 80s, 90s, you know, Andrew Coltart, Mark James, Sam Torrance, Jamie Spence, Mark Rowe, Warren Humphreys, Richard Boxall, just, you know, all great characters, great storytellers. And, I mean, we tell war stories all night long. But being with those guys and being involved with the youngsters, I think, keeps you young. You know, you go out there and the youngsters go, hello, Grandpa, how are you? And you tell them what to do and you have a good laugh. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a good uh, – I think I've got a good connection with the younger players because I still feel like I'm young at heart. You know, when I look in the mirror, it's a lie, but I'm still young at heart. We'll come back to, to some of that. Who are the young players that you find a particular affinity with? You, I'm interested to hear you talk and intrigued, in fact, to hear you talk about that volatile temper on the golf course because you're clearly a very gregarious, happy – person your commentary is the same you've always got a one-liner and some fantastic jokes and it's a joy to listen to that's Jekyll and Hyde what you're describing what's going on there which is the real Tony Johnston I know Jekyll and Hyde I mean he had nothing (laughs) 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 you know I've always thought that golf brings out the best and the worst in you it brought out the best in me in terms of competitive instinct uh, desire and determination but unfortunately, it also brought out um, the worst side of me, um, you know, the, the uh, easily brought to frustration and easily brought to anger, you know, which are not traits of my character that I'm proud of. And I've fought them my whole life. But, you know, being a redhead, I was always a bit feisty and I, I just couldn't understand why I couldn't achieve uh, a greater ability to be consistently good and I never I never came to terms with that you know the, the, the great players can put a bad shot behind them it doesn't phase them at all I was exactly the opposite if you saw me on a, you know an adjacent fairway you knew if I'd made birdie or double you know you knew when to say hello and when not to and you know it was a it was a failing it was a failing in my own character and I, I did try to beat it and unfortunately I just failed miserably nightmare for caddies you must have been over the years. No, you know, strangely enough, I think if you if you ask my caddies, I reckon I'm pretty sure every single caddy that ever caddied for me would say that uh, they enjoyed caddying for me because, you know, some people are crowd blamers, some caddy blamers. You know, it was it was always it was always my fault. Well, my, me and my clubs, I did I did used to go through quite a few shafts as well, <laughs> but I never blamed the caddy because you know I was aware of the fact that my caddy was doing the best he could, his his uh, livelihood depended on him uh, giving the best advice he could. And, uh, yeah, I was never a caddy blamer. You know, it was, you know, I'd give myself an uppercut or, you know, I'd uh, do all sorts of weird stuff out there. But, yeah, no, the, I, I don't think I was a nightmare for the caddy. Maybe, maybe you needed to be more like I that, hope. perhaps, Tony. Maybe that was the key, <laughs> stop blaming yourself and find others to blame and – in fact, there's a there's a there's a line of thinking in professional golf that says exactly that, isn't it? That you should never blame yourself. Always find some other reason so that it's never your fault. Yeah, but that's just that just wasn't what was. Yeah, no, it was never me. I just I couldn't 
couldn't face that. You know, I knew the fault was mine, and uh, you know, I just wasn't enough of a hypocrite to blame. <laughs> you know, the, the butterflies fluttering four hundred yards away that put me off, and yeah, and I was a self blamer. Back to television. What do you see when you look at young golfers? Have the have golfers themselves changed? We know the games changed. We've talked about that and the way it's played, but partly through equipment and money, and for all sorts of reasons, it's evolved into to what we see today, which is still a fabulously entertaining product. I think sometimes people think we bang on a lot about the ball and equipment and mm. those things. People think that yeah. we have no respect or take no joy out of the modern game. That's not true. Uh, the, the modern players are at least as talented, if perhaps not more, than people in the past. There's no question about that. But it is a different game. And have yep. the golfers who 100%. play it changed? It is a different game. Have they changed? What do you see? Uh, uh, yeah, I think the money's done a lot. Uh, has a lot to do with that. You know, there is a heck of a lot of money out there, and it's it's more of a a big business now. I think again, the managers have ensured uh, that's that's partly the reason. You know, everything is structured. Your finances, blah blah blah. Um, but yeah, the equipment's made a big difference. And a hundred percent with you, the young guys out there, the young guns today, the young breed have got absolutely as much talent as we ever had. There's no reason why they shouldn't, but they're asked less questions because of the, um, because of the equipment, you know, they're, they're not asked to shape the ball as much and hit uh, the delicate shots. And I, I feel sorry for them because they, they'll never get to enjoy that side of the game. And, you know, Mike Clayton said last week that the, the gulf between the best players and the decent players 30 years ago was much bigger because the top players had the ability to do something special with a golf ball. And that, that golf has narrowed hugely, you know, with the equipment, the big headed drivers and the low spinning balls, blah, blah, blah. But um, the, the guys are, are equally good, but you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see a softer ball brought back, a ball that spins more and that the, the guys can't just get up and smash, hit and hope, find a wedge and put it out. You know, accuracy should be, um, more important, and, and distance should be less important. The longer hitters have always had an advantage, and so they should. If you're a long straight hitter like Norman, 100% you get the advantage. But to be long and cockeyed, you should not get rewarded for that. And, you know, nothing will ever change my mind on that. Well, Norman was long at 280 uh, as an average. Yes. Now 280, mm. but don't, in fact, I'm not sure that you'd be on the tour at 280. There, there are no, five you, or six. No, you couldn't survive No, there are five or six women on the LPGA who average 280. Uh, so there's there's something to be said yeah, for athleticism, and, you know, I mean, but it's not. <laughs> it, it's absurd. No, no. Look, Rod, when I was I was on tour, I I carried the ball about two forty to two forty five if I crushed one, and I ran it out. Norman was at two eighty to two eighty five, which was a massive difference, and it wouldn't have been as big a difference if he'd been a chopper and he hit the ball sideways. But he just rifled it down the sprinklers, down the middle at 280, and he was always going in with three or four clubs less than you. That's hard to beat. Um, but he was, he, was, he was given the advantage of being a wonderful striker of the ball. And, you know, yes, absolutely. If you're that good, you should be better than anyone else. He's pretty decent at the rest of the game, which was the other frightening thing as a competitor, I imagine, too. He could chip it and putt it and all those other things, yeah, as, yeah, you, yeah, as yeah. you said before. Let's move away from golf a little bit, Tony. I said two things I want to talk to you about. There's actually three. I can't believe I nearly forgot this. I got wrapped up in the golf conversation. You, of course, have MS, multiple sclerosis. <laughs> um, yes. Tell us a bit about that yes. and what that journey's like uh, when you found out what that meant. And I think you're a fabulous success story for a trial drug that worked amazingly well for you. Yes. Look, you know, everybody at some point has a, a big 
health hiccup. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that was my one. I'm not in a hurry to have another one. But, uh, yeah, the short story is I got, um, you know, 02 and 03. I could barely play. I couldn't, I couldn't finish 18 holes. I was just exhausted. And my coordination would go. My legs would go. I was diagnosed with MS and got onto a drugs trial, a drug called Campath, which has changed its name a few times since then. And, you know, with MS, the best drugs they can offer is that it slows down the progression of the MS by about 30%. This was a, a brand new idea. They got this drug that had previously been used for uh, donut, uh, for organ transplants to reduce your immune system to stop uh, the, the organs being rejected. And they, just, they thought, well, look, if we give you a massive dose of this, shut down your immune system completely, maybe your immune system will come back without a dodgy memory, which basically MS is. It goes around attacking things in your body, trying to heal stuff where there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's an overactive immune system. And I had this treatment uh, for five days, two years in a row, and that was it. No further pills, nothing else. I was told I'd, I'd never play golf again. And I managed to get out of the seniors to um, play for another 10, 10 years. Uh, you know, my coordination was never the same, and fatigue has always been a big issue. I mean, the guys will, the guys will tell you, even in the comms box, uh, particularly in hot weather, is, uh, hot, humid weather has a bad effect. Uh, you know, you sort of, I sit there with a mic, and occasionally I hit myself in the forehead when I sort of just start dozing a bit. Because, and I, you just can't help that. And the only cure is to have a 10-minute kip. But uh, I was so, so lucky. I was given a lease on life. You know, the, the national average in the UK from onset of MS to wheelchair is 15 years. It's now uh, 16 years since I had uh, my second treatment. And I can, you know, I, I could still play the game if I really wanted to. I can do everything I want and, and I can enjoy life. So, yeah, I had, a, I had a, a wonderful break, you know. And unfortunately, it took uh, 17 years to get that passed, you know, through all the red tapes. There were a lot of people that didn't have it, and you've got to have it in the early years of MS for it uh, really uh, to be efficacious. So a lot of people missed out on that. I was just lucky. I, was, I got the 120th spot on a trial of 120 people, and uh, I've always said that was the best cut I, was I ever say, made. made. The cut on the number uh, went on to yes, win. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll be eternally grateful for that. I mean, it, it really did give me, you know, who knows? I've had another 16 years of, of normal life and more to come, hopefully. And is that cured, Tony? Are you now MS-free? Is that what that means? They will They will never say MS-free. They'll, they'll say in remission because they, they can't say free because if you get another attack, you know, people start pointing fingers. But, yeah, other than, um, you know, uh, a much lowered energy level and struggling with um, extreme heat and humidity. Other than that, I have no, I have no symptoms. So in my mind, you know, I don't think about it day to day. I don't think, oh, I'm an MS sufferer. I just to think of myself as a really lazy bastard who likes, likes to lie on the couch a lot. <laughs> if, you, if you can get a spot, you'd have to remove your wife first, which would mean I'm doing uh, the Velcro. What did that do for perspective when that happened? Because that happened later in life, as you said, for your career, which is – uh, I imagine yeah. interesting as well. But happened just just before I went on the CDS tour, and you know, Mark James, a uh, really good friend of mine, and you know, always uh, he was seriously misunderstood. Mark James, primarily because of his walk, he just looked like a miserable sod walking around the golf course. <laughs> and only a but true friend Jesse would say that. One of the best. <laughs> uh, uh, he's got one of the best sense of humor, senses of humor in the world. Uh, great guy, genuine guy, warm guy, and he got diagnosed. Uh, sort of prior to that, my, my MS treatment with, um, he had a tumor in his stomach that they discovered just about the size of a, a rugby Jesus. ball. It was huge. 
and yeah, absolutely. And they they found this, and he you know he did all the chemo and he got cured. And I used to phone Jesse fairly regularly, and I said to him, you know, um, once he started playing again, I said, Jesse, has this uh, has this changed your perspective on life and golf in particular? He said, absolutely not. He said, theoretically it should, but he said, as, as soon as I play badly, I want to hang myself. <laughs> and, and you know, it was, I was the same. I went out and I thought, oh, I'm going to have this different perspective on life. I'm going to be calmer. Yeah. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be more mature, <laughs> oh, all that rubbish. And I wasn't. I still acted like an insane child out there. You know, it's just the competitive instinct. You want to, you want to perform the best you can. Uh, <laughs> it's just how fantastic. it is. Fantastic. Poor, poor old Mark James. He might be the, he might be at the other end of the worst luck story in history. Was it two years ago at the old course? He hit a bird with his tee shot oh. and deflected out of bounds. That's <laughs> just staggering <laughs> that it could happen. I mean, <laughs> and we, we laugh because it happened it to somebody happen else, to but there's Jesse. nothing funny about that <laughs> if you're Mark James. I think he was contending at the time, if I'm not mistaken. The senior opener was. That's and and his, rea- his reaction, you know, anybody else, you know, you, you, you'd get us all – his shoulders dropped. And it was, I mean, he's one of my good friends, but man, I just about wet myself laughing when I saw that. It was the funniest thing. <laughs> Indeed. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Tony, was bird watching. You're an avid bird and wildlife watcher. Yeah. In fact, I discovered when I went to do my idea of research is to put your name in Google and see what mm-hmm. comes up. And I came up with a TV series called Bushwhacking or Bush Hacking. Yeah, Bush what's Hacking. What's that about? Yeah, yeah, no. And what's, geez, that was, and what's the interest in wildlife? So much Where'd fun that come doing from? that. Interesting wildlife is I was always interested in wildlife. I was always interested in shooting, actually, to begin with. Uh, you know, in our part of the world, everyone had an air rifle at 10 or 11. And I loved the precision of shooting, which is probably what drove me mad with golf because I could never approach anything like that. But we lived out of town, and across the road, there was a big area of bush. And, you know, prior to really getting into golf, I used to go out there at 10, 11 years of age with my air rifle and my pellets, my bottle of water and a sandwich. You know, and I felt like the great explorer. And I was out there and, you know, I would, I would pay attention. I, would, I was intrigued by the flowers and the birds and, you know, everything that was out there. Uh, the only thing I didn't really want to see was snakes because our parents stressed, you know, that they weren't a good idea to cross. And that instilled the interest in me. And um, I always had a great interest. Our parents used to take us to game reserves to watch animals and I, I got, got into bird watching late in life. My great friend, Colin Little, who I stay with in South Africa when I'm always down there, uh, when we moved to Europe in 93, he said, you know, why don't you come and stay with us? And he's never managed to get rid of me. I still stay with him. <laughs> but uh, his, his grandfather had got him interested in bird watching when he was about four. We were on holiday together in, I think, 2000. And uh, we were sitting around the pool, and there was a little bird whistling in the bushes next to the pool. I said, okay, smart ass. You know, you, I know you're good with your birding. What, what kind of bird is that? And he immediately reeled off the name. I said, well, that's impressive. I said, you know, how many birds are there in South Africa? He said, well, about 960 species. I said, and you can tell me the, that call. So, uh, yeah. I said, well, where is it? I can't see it. He said, no, you're looking too high. And I can't remember what the bird was. He said, that bird you'll find down in the lower strata of the bushes, and he'll be sitting very still. So stop. And I instantly, I thought, man, this is interesting. You know, I talked birding with him thereafter and got absolutely uh, thoroughly involved with birding. I love it. It's, it's intriguing. And the, the good thing about it was if you go to a game reserve, you know, everybody wants to see the big five and the animals. But when you've seen those, you've seen them. 
you know, and you might you might not see that much in the day. But when you're in the in the Bundu, there are always birds. There's always bird calls and different birds and different colours and things happening. And yeah, I I just I fell in love with it. And you know, the bird hacking. You know, if people haven't seen it, there's a website birdhacking.com. Um, one of the girls that produces out in South Africa said to me the one December, you like the Bundu? I said, I do. She said, I've got an idea. And she came to me in, on the SA tour in the, the January, a month later, and she said, I've got this idea. We're going to go into the Kruger Park with a ranger and a cameraman, and we're going to talk about animals in the Kruger Park. And I said, are oh, you completely bonkers? I said, you know, there's lions, there's elephants, there's, you know, and you can't walk in the Kruger Park. It's forbidden. She said, don't worry, I've got this covered. So she came back to me a week later and said, I've got permission. I said, permission for what? Now, if we're going to get a, an armed ranger, cameraman, sound guy, producer, and you. We're going to walk in the Kruger Park and talk about animals. Jeez, this is going to be interesting. And off we went and did it. And she did a wonderful job. Um, Ilana Gordon, her name is, nicknamed Flash. I'll give her a pump because she's an absolute gem. I love her to pieces. And there we went. You know, I did all the, the research and I did the scripting. And then uh, we would go into the park and, you know, we'd drive around and try and find stuff. Then we would walk around and look for stuff. And sometimes we would just find something and I'd just have to use my knowledge off the top of my head and and just do an episode. And we ended up doing three series of bush hacking. I think it's it's about 39 or 40 episodes in all. And people haven't seen it, especially now we've got time to kill. Go and watch it because it's an awful lot of fun. It's fantastic. A little bit like Ian Baker Finch, I've seen this about him as well. He's having a whole second career in television, which is not easy to learn. People dedicate their entire lives to getting into and being good at television the same way they do with golf. What you've just described there is absolutely yeah. proper television. Do you consider yourself now a broadcaster or a golfer? Um, you know, when, when I, I fill in immigration forms, I still put pro golfer. And uh, Tara, my wife, looks at me, she says, you're not a pro golfer. You don't play anymore. Shut <laughs> up. I'm just having a Of course I'm having not. A break. I've always been a pro <laughs> golfer. Right. Don't, be, don't be daft, woman. Yeah, I'm just having a break, man. Um, but you know what? I consider myself a golf, golf commentator. But having worked with top broadcasters, guys like Doogie Donnelly, uh, Dom Holier, uh, David Livingston for Sky, Ewan Murray, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference between professional broadcasters who can do lead commentary. That is a, a gift that I don't think I'll ever possess. You've got to be so quick on your feet and have such a good memory, which I don't have. Um, so I see myself as a golf commentator. I talk about the shots uh, I've been there, I've done that, and I love it. Um, and what a wonderful thing. You know, there are not many people in life that can say they've had two mm-hmm. jobs and absolutely loved both of them. I mean, I've I've been blessed. I really have been blessed. Right? A bit like golf, we, the, the viewing public, don't appreciate how good broadcasters are, do we? Most people, if you stuck a camera in their face for all the criticism they make of everybody, would immediately be unable to walk. The simple act of putting one foot in front of the other. Become, they become so self-conscious, let alone talk and talk off the top of their head, as you say. They, they make it look easy, which is why they're the pros, aren't they? It's, uh, it's much harder than they make it look. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the European, European, tour, uh, European tour productions have this thing where they bring uh, guys in to do uh, an, you know, half an hour's commentary with us during the European tournaments. And it's a wonderful thing. You put the headphones on them and you've got the producer's voice and you've got the, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the counts going in the background and their eyes open up and they go, who, who are you, all these people talking There's in my ears? On, isn't oh, look, we can turn that down for you. Absolutely. And I think they all leave there with a, a different perspective of what commentary is. And, you know, 
you know, you'll do four and a half or five hours of commentary and people will pick out one cock up that you made along the line. But, and I've always said to people, it's way more uh, tiring and it takes a lot more concentration to do five hours of commentary than it does to play a tournament round. Because a tournament round, you hit a shot, you relax for five minutes. But in there, you're in front of the screen, you're in front of the monitor, you've got these voices in your ear, you've got to be watching uh, the leaderboards, the, the laptop, the shots on TV, and you know, the first time I, I did it, I thought, my God, I don't know if I can do this. And I don't think everybody can. Some guys just never learn to cope with all of that. But, uh, I mean, primarily, you've got to be a professional bull duster. And now they pay me for doing <laughs> it. What a wonderful thing to do. If you'd found this all those years ago instead of golf, who knows where you might have gone in the world and developed into it. Absolutely. No, it's, 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 it's wonderful to be yeah. involved. Who are the best in the so business? Just who that, who you do know, you look up to? In golf and golf commentary, who do you hear on TV and go, "Oh, people, people won't appreciate uh, it, but boy, he's good, or she's good." There's a lot of great women uh, commentators too. Peter Alice was mm. the 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 doyen, you know. Way out on a limb there, Tony. Be careful out there. Be careful out there on that limb, Peter <laughs> Alice. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was just he was just he was he was just a joy. Well, wasn't naturally, he? Gifted. Um, you know, Henry Longmist was just before my time that Peter Alice is a wordsmith and he just makes people feel so involved, which is something I've always wanted to do. I've tried to give uh, a player's perspective, but I want the viewer at home to feel like they're sitting in the comms box with us, just having a beer and just talking a, you know, a load of rubbish. But Peter Alice had a gift that is really seen. And I got a phone call from him about three months ago at the blue. And I haven't seen Peter for a while. And he phoned me up. He said, you know, I've got his number on the phone, but I haven't used it for years. Peter Alice, I thought, oh, my God, you know, it's his wife phoning to tell me that Peter's passed away or something. And Peter just phoned to say hello and to tell me that he really enjoyed my commentary. And I cannot tell you how much that meant to me to have Peter Alice. It's like Seve saying, you know, you have a wonderful short game. But he phoned to say that he enjoyed my commentary. He loved listening to me and, um, you know, just keep doing what I'm doing. Man, I walked out of there like cock of the hoop. I went straight through to the lounge. I said, guess who phoned me to tell me I'm doing all right? <laughs> and it, it just meant yeah. so much. But, he, you know, he's a one-off. And, but we have got some fabulous professional broadcasters out there. And, uh, you know, if broadcasting was as easy as people think, everybody would be doing it. It's, uh, you know, we all make cock-ups. I make, my, I make cock-ups. Sure, I do. But, you know, don't try and skirt around it. Just admit you made a cock-up and get on with it. Everybody, everyone makes mistakes. The criticism, of course, for the, the trolling public is always that the commentators are far too nice about the players, that nobody calls them on it when they choke. You know, Johnny Miller was great because he'd just call it as he saw it. Are they being fair? What's your responsibility as a uh, as a as the professional commentating on what the professional is doing? What's your responsibility to the viewer and to the player in terms of a player hits a and it generally comes when a player hit a bad shot, obviously. Yeah, I, th- I think my responsibility as a as a co commentator, a color commentator, is to tell the truth. You know, if a guy chunks a chip, then I'm not going to say, "Oh, that was a bad lie." I'm going to say, "Oh, that was absolutely horrendous," because I put myself in that position, and I know if I was standing there, I would say. That was absolutely horrendous, but probably not quite as nicely, and I probably would have got fined for what I'd said. <laughs> but, you know, I think the majority of players realize that um, you're not trying to be harsh. You're trying to call it as it is, because when they hit a great shot, I will say it's a stunning shot. You know, my, my goal has always been to, to say it as it is, and if I see a player afterwards, I'll say, look, you know, I'm sorry I called that shot as horrendous, and 99% of the times they'll say, 
uh, I don't think you were hard enough. It was an absolute shambles. And I think you 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 know you get um, an understanding with the players. You get a connection with them, and they they'll trust you. You know, I go out on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday and talk to players and get all sorts of stories about private life or you know what's going on in their lives. And you know, I always say to them, look, what parts of that can I use? If you lose that trust, you're done. You might as well go and get something else. So I will never ever say anything over there that's uh, been told to me in confidence, obviously. Uh, they have to trust you. And I think the guys the guys generally would respect me for the fact that I'm, I am calling as it is. And, uh, you know, the odd guy that doesn't like it, well, tough titty. Off you go. You can't take a bit of criticism. Find somebody else you're to doing talk something to. public for letting <laughs> the public get to have a, a say about what it is that you're doing. That That's the deal you make. Uh, when you get into professional golf. Yes. What did you make of the Azinger blow yeah. up recently about that European tour? Did you involve yourself in that uh, at all? No, I didn't. You know what? Again, I think, I mean, I played with, with Zinger a couple of times and really, really enjoyed playing with him. I found him good company. And if you take the word that out of it, you know, it's a bit like doing commentary. You can You can make a mistake somewhere along the line put in the odd word here or there and get shot down in flames. Uh, you know, people have always marveled that I haven't sworn on air yet. Uh, I marvel that I've never sworn on air yet. Um, but, you know, I think if you, if the, in, the, in the context of that statement, if you'd taken the word that out of it, he's put one word in there and he's got absolutely slaughtered for it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt because I don't think Zinger, I don't think he would have, meant that about the European tour. I really don't. And you know what he said about the, the PJ tour being uh, players' goals? True. Well, he wasn't no, 100% lying. 100% true. You know, I'm not trying to downgrade the European tour, but all our top players go to America. A, there's a heap more money over there. Uh, generally speaking, more world rankings. So it's better for your career. Um, look, everybody loves the European tour. Guys like Brooks Koepka comes back here because he loves it. But he wasn't he wasn't telling lies. He wasn't telling lies. So I, I just kept out of it. I kept my nose clean. You know, I love the European tour. I don't want to cause waves. But for me, I would if I, I thought if I take that one word out, uh, he hasn't really said anything that wrong. You know, it's quite easy to get taken out of context, and and he never really put up a defence. No. And I think you know just. Just let it go. Let it go. Because I always found him... And everyone says the same thing about him. His politics, I think, are questionable. To me, I don't agree with a lot of his political stuff that he he talks about, sort of used to on social media and whatnot, but that's got nothing to do with anything. He's he's, he's been a terrific player over time and certainly knows his stuff. It felt to me like the sort of comment, had he made it in a bar in a conversation with yourself and two or three others, you might have put him and go, oh, whoa, 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 easy there. And he would go, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. That's how it felt to me. But you don't get that chance on television. Yeah. Immediately, sort of repair, hundred percent repair what had uh, what had happened. Uh, what is your take on what's going to happen with golf, Tony? Uh, internationally, we're at an interesting time, and this coronavirus is going to bring on. Well, it's it's making life very sure. interesting. The PGA Tour, the European Tour, that Premier Golf League, all of that was bubbling away when golf just suddenly stopped. What do yeah, you think man, the future it's is? Suddenly, just off a cliff edge, aren't we at the moment? Uh, yeah, I think I think the future is good. You know, golf's been around for an awful long time. Um, a lot of people love the game. They love the challenge of the game. Um, I think the game is in, in good hands. The RNA, the RNA now are a different body of men to what they were in the early 80s. 
I mean, I used to have fights every single Open Championship I played in in the 80s and early 90s. I would get into an, a row with somebody and end up getting put off at 4.30 the following year. I mean, year after year, I went off at 4.20 or 4.30 because I'd upset somebody. Um, you know, there were a lot of guys out there with their, their rosettes on and the soup stained tie, and it's not like that anymore. We've got a vibrant young bunch of people. Their intentions for the game are very good. Um, and I think... You know, I think they want to move the game forward. I think they've proved that, you know, they're approaching um, the equipment issue, et cetera. And they do a wonderful amount for the game. You know, where I, I'll tell you very quickly, Rod, my um, eye-opener, my in-laws lived up in the, nor- in the eastern highlands in Barbie. My other, mother-in-law ran a little golf club called Claremont Golf, a membership of a bat. Uh, it was out in the six. And one day I arrived there because we were on our usual Christmas break out there, and here was a nice, a nice newish mower, almost a brand new mower. We got wheeled out. Said, yeah, where'd you get that from? And uh, my mother-in-law said, "Oh, the RNA have sent it to us." I said, what? The RNA? So I actually phoned the RNA when I got home and said, "Listen, guys, can I just get filled in with, you know, how this all works?" And the amount of work they do to keep golf alive and above water in distant parts of the world, and the money they spend on keeping interest going in the game was astonishing. And from that moment on, I had a different perspective of, um, of what the RNA do. And I think it's in good hands. You know, I think the, the USGA are catching up. Sometimes I don't think they're quite, uh, they're quite as um, ahead of the game as the it's RNA. It's a different game in America. Uh, you know, we still Everything about golf is different yeah, in America. Yeah, it is. It is. To me. It's a- it's, it is. It is. It's different. Um, but, yeah, I, no, I think all in all, Golf's not going to die. It's going to keep going. Maybe we can find ways to make it more interesting. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know how we make it cheaper. That's a big thing because there's no doubt it's seriously expensive now. It is an expensive game. You know, when I played in uh, Bulaway and Rhodesia all those years ago, uh, we used to get given uh, 10 cents. And out of that, we went to play golf. We had a caddy. We practiced all day. We had a little bet for a pint Coke, you know, during one of the rounds. And when we got home, our parents said, you know, where's the change? <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. It was, you know, we just played golf all day on 10 cents. and had a little gamble along the way. And it, it was amazing. But I mean, you can't do that now. You know, you want to go and have a game somewhere. It's costing you hundreds of pounds or dollars or whatever. And it's, it's a bit daunting, you know, especially with – um, the financial climate, you know, after the crash in 07, 08, things are worse now. Um, somehow we've got to just make it, you know, we've just got to get more people in. How? I don't know. But, it feels uh, much of that's that the goal. expense is about expectation. It's that Augustus syndrome, don't you feel, that that people have an expectation of paying a certain amount of money and being dished up a certain set of conditions which are judged to be better than others. It, it is the obsession with the game amongst golfers which might ultimately – kill the goose that laid the golden egg in many ways. This this yeah. desire for perfect grass conditions, both in terms of playability and aesthetically, which is extraordinarily expensive and, frankly, completely overrated and does nothing for the game. I think, as Mike Clayton has said more than, more than once, he's been a member at Metro for 40 years. He's yet to have a bad lie, and that's not a good thing for golf. No, uh, no, I agree. I agree. You know, it's just... just uh, I mean, the expense, the cost of it, as you said, right, is just phenomenal. Could professional golf do the whole game a favour by just occasionally going to a golf course that wasn't perfect? We see relentless pictures week in and week out from tours around the world, men's tours and women's tours, 
of golf courses in absolutely perfect condition. It's normally one of the talking points. You'll hear at some point a player during the week say, the greens are perfect, the conditions are perfect, unless there's been some form of weather event. Mm. And they'll say, in that case, the grounds crew have done an amazing job to get the course as playable as it is. But there's something in that, isn't there, that if we keep dishing up on television this bright green golf with these perfectly manicured edges, that's what people expect to find when they go to the local golf course. Uh, yes, it is. And, you know, you, you say, could the pros uh, play in a different golf course? Probably not, because they get served up perfect courses every week. You know, it made all of us fairly precious. If you ri- arrived at a course and it was in sort of fairly shoddy condition without any sensible reason, like a drought or floods, uh, you know, you you would play it. Some guys would pack their clubs and go home. You would play it, but you'd have to think twice about Thank going you. back the following year because, you know, there's so much golf now that you can pick and choose the courses that you know are going to be in great condition. So I think that's a non-starter. But if we could get amateurs to understand that courses don't have to be perfect to, to have a great time out there. You know, the fun for amateur golf is being out there with your buddies and having a laugh and being outdoors and, you know, just enjoying nature. Uh, you know, let's instill more of that into, into golf. For recreational golf, it's never about the golf, Tony. If it was about the golf, we would have all given up years ago. As you rightly pointed out yourself, yeah. the, the level of playing <laughs> ability is not what brings you back. You get one around generally. That's how it works. You, you hit that one shot that yeah, ensures true. that you'll be back next week. I'd love to chat to you for even longer, but I've taken, <laughs> I've taken a lot of your precious time. I know there's not a whole lot in the diary, but that doesn't mean that time's not ticking and you've got other things to do. So it's been great to catch up, my friend. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Rob. That's it for episode 18. I hope you enjoyed it even half as much as I did. What a fabulous attitude Tony brings to the game. And while it was remiss of me not to mention it during the interview there, 25 professional wins on his resume. He has some golf cred too. On our next episode, we jump from the glory days of the 80s and 90s to the modern reality that is professional golf and trying to make it in a world where just earning a tour card can feel like winning a major. Our guest is former British amateur champion and standout former college player, Bryden McPherson. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>